Welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast with your host, Mike Glover. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be focused on survival, all things survival. I have a great passion for survival. Obviously, my business, Fieldcraft Survival, this podcast is in that realm. But today, we're going to focus our attention on what I think you should do to be prepared as their modern day survivalist. You know, being a survivor, being prepared has always been associated with preppers or people who live in a state of fear and paranoia. Conspiracy theorists, antennas hanging off their homes, waiting for the UFOs to come get them. Throughout history, institutions have created this preparedness mindset, whether it was the Cold War or the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a lot of things that the institutions that existed around us did to better prepare civilians. So when you look back in recent history, you can look at 9-11 and see as an institution, as a government, what our government decided to do in securing our airways. Now, the reason I bring that up is because, yeah, institutionally, our government has done a lot as far as protecting its civilians and the citizens of this country. They want to make us safer. So they make the Department of Homeland Security. They have 17 intelligence agencies that analyze information. They are hypervigilant and analyzing information that's coming overseas. There's a whole bunch of different things the government does to protect us institutionally. My whole point is as a civilian living a normal life, doing your nine to five, doing whatever pattern of life it is that you do, you have an onus of responsibility to yourself, to your family and friends, to be prepared for the worst case scenario and to be self-reliant and self-dependent. I teach an active shooter course in Modesto, California, and the premise of this course is to teach the psychology of survival, to be better prepared, and what you specifically need to do in the event that an active shooter is present. Part of this course, I identify some statistics. You know, obviously analytics are important part of the learning process. But one of the statistics tells us that the active shooter scenario typically lasts 12 to 15 minutes. Well, the average police response time is about the same. So what does that tell me? That tells me that for 12 minutes, your ass is on you. If you want to survive, you got 12 minutes to survive. What are you going to do? And when I analyze this information, I teach the psychology of what goes right and what goes wrong in these kind of scenarios. Why do people make these mistakes? And so we're going to talk about some things to make sure that you could make being a survivalist convenient for your everyday life, which is the whole point of my company and the whole point of Philcraft. You know, for me as an individual, being a survivalist or being prepared isn't inconvenient, but I live this life. This is, this is what I do for a living. But if you're working in a nine to five in a cubicle at a corporation, it could be inconvenient. But you know, I, I'm going to make it so that you understand how fun it could be, how you can get your family involved and how we could better prepare you for a no shit real world situation that potentially could save your life. So here we go. Let's talk about psychology, survival psychology first. What is survival psychology? I quote John Leach, who is a survival psychologist all the time because he has a pretty easy way of analyzing 
case studies of people who have survived and people who have died in tragic events. Most of these are accidents. And he took all this information and he said, hey, we could break down the population of all these people who are in these accidents or in these tragedies and really analyze and break down who survived, why they survived, who died and why they died. And he calls it the 108010. And people have heard me talk about this before, but the 108010 is essentially 10% of the population that were in these catastrophes survived. They were the top bracket, the top tier, and these 10% did the right things. They made quick decisions that led them to survive. They grabbed the life vest when the boat overturned and were prepared for it when it went in the water. And so they lived on to the 80%, you know, 10, 80, 10, 80% of the population made mistakes. And sometimes it turned out in their favor. Sometimes it didn't. They didn't grab the life vest, but they fell off in the water, but they were a good swimmer. And when they were in the water, they found a piece of floating material and they got on it and they made decisions afterwards that made a, may have led them to survive. And the bottom 10% are the bottom 10% of the population who just do dumb shit, right? Who just experience complete and utter shock and everything's chaotic and they jump off the boat with a life vest sitting next to them and they drowned. You know, they jump out of a 15 story building when they could have just took these stairs and they make decisions that are really hasty and really the wrong thing to do. So they die. They pay the ultimate sacrifice. When analyzing this information, if you look at the bottom bracket, children are typically in the bottom bracket. So what does all this information mean, the 108010? Well, here's what I'll equate it to and something that's modern and something that's tragic that happened recently. In Fort Lauderdale, Florida, a psychotic, psychopath, terrorist affiliated, maybe inspired, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? It's a man-made catastrophe. A person went inside of an airport into the baggage claim and started killing people. Well, in that instance, when he started killing people, right after the fact, people started pulling out their cell phones, which nowadays seems to be the immediate action drill and a poor reaction, in my opinion, which is to pull out a cell phone and not try to get off the X. Well, you know, something that occurred to me when watching the news was I saw two video clips. In one video clip, you had a guy taking a cell phone video inside the baggage claim where people were just shot. People were just killed. There was people on the ground. There was people mourning over those people. There was people pacing back and forth. There was even one guy who was standing in the middle of all the chaos and he had his hands in his pockets and he was just kind of looking around, completely froze. There was a guy on the cell phone who was videotaping. And then there was a woman who was giving instructions and kind of panicking, telling the person who was videotaping something. In another video I saw, it was a video of a parking lot, I'm assuming of the front of the airport, where there was a man holding his kid and running with his wife in his right arm. He had his wife gripped by the arm and he was basically dragging her ass across the parking lot and he was unassing the area. He was hauling ass. So what do those mean? Well, the 108010 in correlation with this modern tragedy that took place in these videos, you can determine based on what you're seeing, what people are going to survive and what people are going to live. So the top 10% would be the guy who's evading. He is moving as fast as he can himself and his family off the X, off the danger area, off the crisis site. 
And then the people in the airport, the guy on the phone who just filmed the people being killed, right? They're laying in blood. The people who are panicking, the people who are doing random things, that's shock. And those people are in the 80 percentile. And then the 10% of the victims, God rest their souls, they're just victims. They just, the wrong place, the wrong time, and they're just laying there. When we think about that video and we analyze that information that John Leach put out, you could routinely say in every scenario, you're going to have a breakdown of this 1080-10 of people who live and of people who die. So what separates the people who live versus the people who die? Why do people panic? Why do people pace? Why do people lay on the ground mourning and crying right after a gunman just went in and smoked a whole bunch of innocent civilians? Why do they do that? I'll tell you why. The reason is easy. It's because the people who are in shock, the people who don't know what to do are reacting because they don't have training. That's right. They don't have any training whatsoever. Remember I told you that children are typically in the bottom 10%. The reason they are is because they don't have information stored in their head to be able to react and respond to. I use the analogy in my class of my grandmother. My grandmother on my Korean side is built like a brick shit house. We call her Harmony. Harmony is grandma in Korean. Well, if my grandmother, my Harmony, walked inside of a room when I was teaching a class and pimp slapped me in the face, I wouldn't know what to do. Because really, I've never even thought about what would happen in that situation. I've never really analyzed that. I've never rehearsed it. And I sure as hell never have trained in it. So I would react poorly. Well, if somebody came and kicked in a door when I was teaching a class and they had a firearm and we're going to get their active shooter on, I would draw my pistol and immediately react and shoot that person in the face a few times. And I would know exactly what to do. I would know what to do pre-imminent threat where I indicate on a threat, where I observe somebody potentially going to do something dangerous. I would know what to do during the duration of drawing my pistol. And I would know what to do post shooting that person in the face and ending that threat because I've been in that real life scenario in real life. So I've trained for that. I've actually gained the experience in that. And I have the equipment to be able to facilitate that entire scenario. So that doesn't make me a badass. That makes me train in something specific. I talk about gamers, right? Gamers are people who have good eye-hand coordination. They're a, a the millennial generation of video gaming where they grow up playing this first person shooter games where they could in a video game, pick up a gun and just smoke somebody and they're really immune to it. And you look at the psychology and you look at the studies of active shooters who do these massive shootings and they don't have any experience. They don't have any training. There's a part of this that you have to understand is you don't have to have the specific training and what you're going to accomplish. You just need to have the familiarization or the rehearsal. I talk about reconnaissance all the time because I'm a reconnaissance guy. When I was doing the analysis and looking at the terrain that we were going to potentially face during an operation, I would do map reconnaissance where I took out a map. I looked at the contour lines. I looked at the peaks, the valleys. I looked at all this terrain and how I would navigate it best in order to get to my objective and not be smoked. Well, that map reconnaissance helped me when I hit the ground, relate the two. And so it's almost like I've been there before. 
but I've never actually been there. So there is something that you could do in the rehearsal, the dry fire of things, and be prepared through the mechanics in a real life scenario. Part of the evolution of training in special operations, one of the things they always put out is you want to experience whatever it is you're training for in training and not in real life for the first time. You obviously, for the first time that you're in a gunfight, don't want to be in a gunfight where your actual life counts. You want to do it in training, make the mistakes, and then refine the process and then be better at it. So the reason I tell you that is because it's important to understand that to be a survivalist, to have a higher statistical probability of surviving, you have to be trained. You just don't magically make the assumption based on your go bag that you're going to be a survivalist because you've watched the YouTube videos, but you've never truly actually been in training and experience what your mindset is, what your physical body is in those conditions. So it's a full spectrum process and understanding this to be a better prepared survivalist. War story time. So again, no shit there I was. I was in SEER school and I've told this on the live Instagram feed, but I was in SEER school and I was in what they call the box. If you guys see the show, The Selection on the History Channel, they have the boxes and they put you in solitary confinement and tight solitary confinement. And you know, if you're claustrophobic, you're going to be in a world of shit. Well, I'm inside this box and I'm not claustrophobic. I grew up in cardboard boxes, not on the streets, but inside my, in my apartment with my dad. And I had no issues with being inside this box. Well, when I got inside this box, I had to piss. And when I had to piss, I was thinking through this and I was like, you know what? If I piss on the floor in this crouch position, the guards are going to see it. They're going to pull me out and they're going to work me over. So how can I get away with this? Well, I knew they were going to drag us back out into the yard and I knew eventually I was going to get taken out. So I decided, hey, you know, I had my boots. I was in pajamas, the sear issued pajamas that they give you, which, you know, your shit's hanging out, you ripped to shreds. So I'm in this box and I have to piss really bad. And I'm looking down at my boots and I, I wear a Danner size 13 boot. And I'm like, well, I'll just piss in my boot. I'll piss in my boot. And then when they take me back out in the yard, I'll just dump it into the yard. And nobody will know I was there. Nobody know I pissed and it'll be no big deal. Well, I took my boot off. I pissed inside my boot and then I decided I want to put my boot back on and I was going to sneak this piss out later on, but I forgot displacement. I forgot that when I stuck my foot back in my boot, it was just going to dump out all the piss everywhere. Well, I didn't think of that until I had already done it. So I basically put my boot back in, piss went everywhere. So now trying to think through this problem I look at myself and I go, well, well, shit, that, that was stupid because now my right foot is filled with piss. My boot has piss in it. And now I have piss all over the ground. And now when they pull me out of the cage, they look at me and call me disgusting and then smack me around. It's a funny ass story. And it was even funnier living it. Well, when I think about that story, it relates back to this survival psychology. When you're in stressful positions, when you're in stressful conditions, trying to survive, and you don't have the training methodology, you've never been put in that scenario before, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to do dumb shit. And I'm a big proponent of this Blue Lives Matter push, right? We're supporting our law enforcement. I support our law enforcement because I understand what they go through when they're part of an institution and they aren't properly trained and have to make critical life-saving decisions on a daily basis. How can we blame the police officer who draws his 
pistol instead of his taser and accidentally shoots a guy if he hasn't been trained by the institution? And how do we accuse him of murder, which means he intentionally killed somebody when he accidentally did that? Especially as, you know, for these law enforcement officers who were wearing the uniform who aren't intentionally going around trying to kill people. I mean, you have some bad apples anywhere you are in any institution, but for the most part, LE, from my experience, are in the positions that they're in for the best intentions. So it all comes down to condition training if you want to ultimately survive. All right, the next part of this we're going to talk about is mindset, right? You have to have the right mindset. Mindset really is the go criteria to initiate everything that you're going to do in your life. Recently, I've ran an active shooter course and I had a husband and wife who came to my course They're blue collar, normal people who live a nine to five, who have kids. He works at a bank. She's a teacher. And they wanted to be better prepared just in case shit hit the fan. And last weekend, I did a pistol course and they both came to my gunfighter pistol course because they're training together to be better prepared and they want to learn all the skill sets required. But before they had to make that decision, they had to decide as a couple that they wanted to have the right mindset. So you might be the type of person or the couple that might be sitting at home watching TV or seeing tragedies happen on the news saying, hey, we we should probably get better prepared or, hey, we should do something just in case something happens. Well, that's number one. I think creating the right mindset obviously is the start point for all this stuff. But the reason people don't do it is because they associate that if you're prepared or you're a survivalist or you're a prepper, then somehow you're paranoid, you're fearful. And that in America, in today's day and age, you shouldn't be that way. But remember, I told you, yeah, there's an institutional responsibility to LE, to civilians for travel, civilians overseas and abroad. There's an ultimate umbrella that should cover us by the government because of our taxpaying dollars. But more important than that is our individual responsibilities to take care of ourselves and to take care of our families. If somebody right now kicked in your front door, somebody right now put a gun to your head and it was just you and that person and your life depended on what you did. And remember, I told you that 108010, and remember, I told you that training is the, the missing sliver of information that you don't have. And that's why you do dumb shit. And when you do have that information, you potentially might make the right decision and do right shit. Well, that's not going to create itself on its own. So when that experience does happen and you're faced with that one decision that could kill you or allow you to live, then it is critical. Then at that moment, it is important. People sometimes when they overcome cancer, when they overcome a shooting, a horrible event in their lives, sometimes they write books about it. Sometimes those books are made into movies. Well, those people in those instances could have easily been in the bottom 10%, but they made a decision and maybe it was luck and maybe it was their decision-making that allowed them to survive. Well, people in the military and special operations on a daily basis do things that they're supposed to do because they're trained that way and they survive again and again and again, even against all odds. When I was in special operations and we were doing a lot of direct action operations overseas where I was getting on helicopters with my peers and we were flying to known safe houses of foreign fighters and terrorists, we are putting ourselves in positions to fight every single night. There's military units, there's police officers who 
don't only face that once in a lifetime. And we were doing it every night. Again, it's not an egotistical thing. It's because we were adequately trained. And every time we put ourselves in those situations, we were prepared. So that's what separates the survivalist or the survivor from the victim. You don't have to be a victim. Having the right mindset, not just to fight when it's appropriate, but also preparing in advance of that to know how to fight is how you're going to survive, how your family is going to be better prepared. You know, if you look at arbitrary tasks, arbitrary skills that you learn growing up, for example, as a man, you should know how to change a tire, right? As a woman, you should know how to change a tire, right? You know, if somebody taught you that, maybe your dad, maybe somebody in your family taught you how to change a tire. Well, when you get a flat tire, you're self-reliant, right? You go to the back of the vehicle, you get your spare because you know your spare. You get your tools, you change your tire, and then you make shit happen. Well, more so in society, more than ever because of technology, because the ease of picking up a phone and saying, hey, AAA, can you send somebody out here to change my tire? It's making us overall as a society more complacent. And so I think back, reverting back to that video in Florida, that guy who grabbed his wife, who grabbed his kid, that might have been a fear response, fight or flight. And that he might have done that out of fear. But you know what? It was the right thing to do. He might have took an active shooter course or he might have been a police officer, but he knew exactly what to do to get off the X, to survive, to live another day. The worst thing that could happen to you is what happens to people every single day in our country is they're faced with these epic tragedies and sometimes they overcome. And when they overcome, they tell their epic story about how they overcame. You don't want to be that person talking about how you got lucky and by the grace of God, you made it through. What you want to be doing is telling a story instead about how you prepared and you had always been prepared for that moment. So when that guy kicked in your front door, you had a firearm that you can go to every single time and you shot that bad guy in his face. That's the important element to all this. It doesn't have to be a firearm. It could have been a, a lock, a locking mechanism that prevented him from coming in. But as a preparer, as a survivalist, you have to be ready for the worst case scenario. The next component is equipment and how it enables your mindset. You know, you could have all the guts, you could have all the tenacity, the positive outlook, you could have all these things in your bag of tricks inside your head. But if you don't have the equipment to enable some of these processes, some of these mental processes, then you're not going to be able to survive because you don't have the actual equipment to be able to stop the potential threat or to get you out of the situation. I talked about the 108010 and one of the situations was the boat flips and the guy grabs the vest, he puts it on and then he jumps in the water and then he floats and he lives. Well, if he didn't have the equipment ready, if he didn't have the equipment right there at his disposal, he potentially would have drowned. So why depend on an institution to provide the equipment? In a whole bunch of examples that I could think of, we as a society depend on others to defend our lives. We depend on 911 and everybody wants to hate the cops until something goes wrong, until you need emergency response. So why not be independent and why not depend on yourself and be self-reliant? I remember studying survival 
when I started this business and I was looking at natural catastrophes because man-made catastrophes are pretty easy for me. But natural catastrophes are different because they vary by geographical region. They vary in their severity. I remember reading about a ice storm that hit Atlanta and there was like one to two inches of ice and it shut down traffic and people were stuck in their vehicles for hours, almost days. They were stranded on the highway, stuck in their vehicles. I mean, people literally bedded down in their vehicles and said, this is it. Oh shit, this is it. And I just went through a pretty epic storm, winter storm in Wyoming in my forerunner. The forerunner in mobility is going to be a separate episode, but I love this thing, right? It gets me anywhere. It's comfortable. It's awesome. But I had the right equipment for the condition. I was on this road and I was leaving Utah, going into Wyoming and a blizzard hit and it was causing a lot of issues on the streets, on the roads, and it shut down the highway. It was the middle of the night. So I had almost zero visibility. I had minimal places to go and stay. And I was observing trucks, cars, people just getting stuck on the side of the roads and abandoning themselves and not able to do anything and not being self-reliant. And so I had the right equipment for the conditions. I had an off-road vehicle that had off-road tires. I had a go bag. I had water. I had all the essentials that I needed to survive in that type of situation. If shit really hit the fan, I lost power. I had Mylar blankets in my go bag. I had a poncho. I had a sleeping bag. And I had the basic necessities. Now, how inconvenient was that for me? Not at all. I mean, my off-road vehicle was my daily driver. My off-road tires just happened to be on my off-road vehicle. My go bag stays in my truck. I don't have to pull it in and out. And all the contents of that, I pre-packed based on the conditions. So it's pretty easy. So to have the right equipment when you need it is essential in survival. It's a no-brainer, right? Well, that's why I talk about this everyday carry. You know, my everyday carry is a pistol. It's a pistol that's loaded with one in the chamber and a good Kydex holster that I can get to reliably and fast. It's a knife, a utility knife folder that I can pull out as a secondary to my pistol where I could do damage with it if I have to defend my life or my family's life. But it's also a utility knife so I can cut stuff. I could use it as a wedge. I use it for everything. And then I have my wallet with my ID card and all my stuff in it which is a type of wallet that I got from REI that keeps you from being able to scan inside the wallet. I carry a light source on me, you know, a Surefire Vampire Victor One that's basically a small Surefire that fits conveniently in my pocket. And in my vehicle, I have, you're going to laugh, but I have a battle axe, a Fisker's hatchet, a go bag, food, water, blankets, a winch, you know, a rack, basically everything I need to survive on the go when shit hits the fan. And if something happens and I'm in my vehicle and shit hits the fan, well, I grab my bag and I unass it and I take myself away from that situation. So when we're looking at equipment and implementing it into our lives, we have to train off this equipment because we can't just assume that because we have the equipment that we're going to be okay. You know, recently I was watching the show Alone and Alone's a great show because it shows you what happens psychologically to people when they're deficient in nutrition when they're complacent, when they get away and they're isolated. And when you watch that show, you always find, and this is any show in survival, but you always find the bushcraft expert who's an expert in using their hands and doing things out in the wood line and not depending on actual tools, you know, so they can make the fires with sticks. 
They could procure the vegetation, the meat, they could trap, they could do all these cool things. What I always think is funny is these people who are so self-reliant, who teach bushcraft for a living, and now they're in the woods, they're actually living what they teach, they can't survive. That would be like me running a tactical course and me not demonstrating what I'm teaching. If you ever have a teacher and he's not capable of demonstrating exactly what it is he teaches, you might want to look elsewhere for a different instructor. I always demonstrate what I teach, but I also apply the reality behind why I teach what I teach. I don't teach anything because I heard somebody regurgitate it and now I take their information and then just regurgitate it myself. What I do is I teach based on principles of survival, on tactics, of things that I've experienced myself in the real world. You know, overall, equipment doesn't have to be inconvenient. On PhilCraftSurvival.com, you could find our minimalist survival kit. But you know what I did? You know, I took a survival kit that's a standardized survival kit that I used overseas in contracting and low-vis operations and special operations and took all the staples of survival, which if you haven't heard it already, you can hear it on the Go Bag podcast. I think it's episode two. But I took all the staples of survival and put it into a small container that you could fit inside of a backpack, a glove box, a center console that's not inconvenient but doesn't give this overt military signature. And so it's easy for me to pack that in there. But on top of that, you have to train that equipment in order to be efficient and effective at it. And that's the funnest part, right? And that's that's what I was telling you about before, where, you know, telling you how to integrate and bring in your family. Well, if you get my Philcraft Survival Kit, right? And yeah, it's a shameless plug. I don't give a shit. It has all great contents in it. There's nothing that's cheap. It's all really good stuff. Well, you can go out and build a fire. You could procure water and sanitize it. When you go camping, you could bring it and utilize it. If you glamp, which is glamorous camping, which I've done before and it's awesome, you could still bring this along and then go through it and learn all the things that you're using. You know, one of my rules of thumb now for camping is when I camp, I like to bring my go bag because I want to work through the things that I have in my go bag, get rid of the shit that doesn't work cycle out the food and water and get fresh food and water in it. And I want to be proficient at it. You know, if you carry a gun, for example, in your everyday carry, and you don't know how to effectively draw that gun, or you don't know exactly what it does when you have to put it to work, and you don't know how to fix it when it's broke, well, you might want to start learning those things to be more effective and to have all your equipment enable your survivability. One thing that's very important in all this and survival preparedness and the modern day survivalist is you have to look at your specific situation and do the best you can. For example, if you have kids and you have a two-story building and there's a chance that you might have a fire, right? I mean, fire is one of those things that the shit just happens. Well, you might want to rehearse with your family how you're going to get out of that house. And you might want to put equipment inside that house that potentially helps you in the event that you do have a fire. You know, you could put fire extinguishers. You could put these Mylar space blankets. You could put all these different things inside of your house that could potentially save your ass and save your family's ass, but also make it a learning experience and make it fun during the overall process. I was talking to a buddy of mine, Kurt, today, and we were talking about tactics and we were talking about, you know, special operations, good times back in our units. And we were both snipers in the same unit. And 
he was talking to me about what he does and how he prepares for the worst case scenarios. Well, you know, in his car, he has an IFAC, for example. He has a medical kit just in case something goes wrong. He has tourniquets. You know, 18 Deltas from his special forces time make these medical kits and put tourniquets in his vehicle just in case shit hit the fan. I've actually been in a lot of real world scenarios overseas and at home where the kit inside my vehicle helped me save potentially someone's life. I remember I was going to an event, a charity event, and I had a Dan Winkler hatchet, which was a breaching hatchet or breaching axe inside of my vehicle. And it was brand new. The shit's really expensive. It's really awesome. But I never thought in a million years, I used it in my contracting days, but I never thought in a million years I would use it in the United States. And I came across a burning RV where the owner had pulled his wife out, but she was going back and forth in this burning RV and panicking. So I immediately identified that this guy, because he had never been put in a situation, you know, he was in that 80 percentile, potentially in that 10 percentile, the bottom 10, where he didn't really know what to do and he was panicking. So I ran back to the vehicle and I gave him clear and concise guidance and instructions, just like a subordinate in the army. You know, it's like, hey, this is exactly what you need to do. Make it happen. Execute. And he listened to my instructions and I told him he needed to call 911 and get his wife away from the burning vehicle. And this RV was probably a $500,000 RV. Well, he had his dogs and his cats inside the RV. So, you know, I went inside the RV, I pulled them out. And I tried to rescue the cats, but it was burning too bad. It was burning really, really bad. So I went back to the vehicle and I grabbed the axe and I started smashing the windows of this $500,000 RV in an attempt to get the cats out. We did wind up saving one of the cats. But when I think about that scenario and that situation, if I didn't have that equipment, I wouldn't have been able to do anything. And I never thought in a million years that I would need that. But when you do need it, It's like, shit, I wish I had that. I wish I had that right now. And, you know, I talked about EDC a little bit, but when you need your firearm, for example, to defend your life or defend somebody else's life, you never want to be in a situation with a firearm where you're defending your life and wish that you would have had that firearm, right? So I I never check that block. We as a society are naturally becoming more complacent in our lives. You know, when you live in a convenient bubble, When you live in complacency, you make mistakes that you don't typically see because you're not paying attention. In special operations, this complacency can get you killed overseas. You know, when you're doing low-vis operations or overt operations and you're not paying attention, you're not scanning, you're not pulling security, you're not observing and watching, you make mistakes and you miss out. And that simple mistake of missing a wire, a person, a weapon system could potentially get you and your guys killed. So I run training all the time where, you know, this, in the next two weeks, I'm running a course where we're doing urban to rural survival evasion course. And it's based off a minimalist principle where you have to evade a major metropolitan area like San Francisco, and you have to get away into a rural safe site. You know, we teach these principles along the way. We mentor and augment the equipment and give them that experience. That's the last part of this. We talked about the psychology. We talked about the mindset, right? You have to have the right mindset to be somebody who's going to defend human life, your own life, your family's life. And once you've made that decision, you have to align the right equipment and the right training 
to facilitate that process. Well, the last part of this is experience. Experience is what wholeheartedly will make this whole process full circle because once you gain the experience, and it could be the experience in training where you make the mistakes, where you build the efficiency, it's only then after the experience, you can go back and change what you need to change to make sure you're doing it right and building the right habits. So, hey guys, that's a wrap. You know, this is part one. I was going to make this a longer episode, but I've decided that I'm going to go ahead and make this part one. And then we're going to do part two, talking about the experience, talking about the training process and giving you some tips on survival and preparedness. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It's always enjoyable for me to talk about these different things because I'm really passionate. If you couldn't tell already, I'm talking 100 miles an hour. I'm really passionate about this subject matter, which is my expertise and which is my company. If you guys want to check us out, check us out on philcraftsurvival.com. You can check us out on Instagram at soft survivor and at philcraftsurvival. If you have any questions, please email us at media at philcraftsurvival.com. And I look forward to the next episode. If you guys can tune in, subscribe, please leave us feedback. We love your feedback. It's what drives this podcast. Thanks guys for the support. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive.